Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 93, your weekly dose of retro gaming. And technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Hopefully not sounding too husky after a busy couple of weeks. Oh, yes. N- now we can relax, Dan. <laughs> all, all the kind of events are over and stuff. It's good. Play Expo last weekend. What a weekend we had. And I think, fingers crossed, we did manage to record the interviews that we did on stage this time. Yeah, no, I didn't fall off, so that was good. <laughs> so we're going to bring you those amazing panels that we did in coming weeks on the show when we get the audio taken off and edited. If you did come along and uh, say hi to us as well, we met up with so many people it was such an incredible weekend so thank you so much for being there and uh roll on play blackpool it's coming up in february oh totally <laughs> and the guest we've got today oh my god guys bob wakelin we've always wanted to have this guest on haven't we well we first met bob actually at play didn't we about two years ago i think yeah because he, he he's at these events quite a lot and he has kind of a stand yeah. and you know he did all the video game art the original stuff for ocean you know um those like kind of muscly guys and sexy ladies that you'd have on the front of the games. Like. It was very much inspired by like comic books and stuff, his early stuff, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, or, or, or kind of Rambo-ish. You know, like, Action man figures yeah, and yeah. that. Then obviously though, I mean, he did stuff like, you know, um, Parasol Stars and Rainbow Islands and the kind of cartoon cutesy kind of games as well later on. So Yeah, totally. And we're, we're talking to Bob about what it was like to kind of be a... a uh, an artist, but not a video game artist, a video game cover artist. Yeah, because, I mean, you think back then, and we do kind of touch on this in the interview, because graphics, especially in, like, the 8-bit days when he started on the C64, it was really, I mean, the front cover of the game is what would sell you in the shop. I remember being a kid and looking up at the shelf full of, like, you know, cassette tapes, and even when you went in to get Amiga games and, like, Electronics Boutique and all that later on, it would always be the covers that would draw you in first. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, even even at the back, you'd have a blurb and a description, but that would always be just some rubbish. Like, the cover would kind of get your mind going and think, right, let's jump into this. And, you know, it would set up that kind of fantasy world. Well, I remember, you know, in the 8-bit days, it was kind of like, because you'd look at the back and the screenshots would always be from, like, the 16-bit platforms. Well, they'd be from <laughs> wrong platforms, yeah. Well, okay. it's, it's, yeah, totally. And you'd be like, take it home. <laughs> like, where have all the details gone? <laughs> Little asterisk who was always there said at the bottom. Not screen- actual representations or, of the product. Or so. Screenshots maybe from a different platform, yeah. I would always say. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, those amazing covers. And, I mean, Ocean were, like, the kings of that, weren't they? And Bob was really their main artist. Totally, the yeah. And, and by the sounds of it, they kept him you know, kind of protected away yeah. from the other people. So. so he's got some great stories to tell. What a guy. Bob Wakelin, the ocean software legend, is our special guest on this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast. He'll be coming up in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, we do do the show week in, week out. We may be the only weekly British retro gaming podcast. <laughs> yeah, you've added British now because we we also realised after uh, New Game Plus, yeah. we also realised that there's a podcast that I donate to. Ravi. Which <laughs> is so bad. Um, called Amigos Podcast. How did I not notice they were weekly? I mean, you, just, you watch like, every episode as well. Every yeah. episode, every Let's Play, yeah. yeah. They, are, they are top guys as well. So, I mean, if, if you are into the Amiga and you haven't checked them out, they put a lot of effort into their videos as well. Well, well they? they've got to the point now, through donations, probably some of mine, that they've, they've been able to build a studio 
which is fantastic. And the quality of it is just gone through the roof and uh, check it out. Well deserved. I mean, if you haven't seen that, we'll put a link in this week's show notes as well. But, you know, as far as we know, we could possibly be the only weekly British... This is going to get worse, isn't it? The only British one based in the Midlands (laughs) releases on Friday. (laughs) But we couldn't do the show week in, week out without your very generous support now. If you may be new to the show and you think, actually, this is really cool, I'd, I'd like you guys to keep doing this. Or maybe you're a long-term listener, maybe you've listened since episode one. The only way we can keep doing the Retro Hour podcast every week is thanks to your very generous donations. Now, we do have, um, and this is completely optional, it's just a tip jar. Anything we get in there all goes back into the running of this show. And you'll find a PayPal link, a Bitcoin donation button as well, on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. And this week, making their place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, thank you, Daniel Waddington... Adrian Nelson. Alicia Cuff. Gareth Murphin. Who all made donations, and you can do the same by nipping onto our website, theretrohour.com. Of course, my wedding was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. You were hanging out with, with a few, like, you know, kind of retro gaming friends. There I think, I think and... this is the only wedding that I went to where there was the ex-head of Commodore. Yeah. <laughs> and they were also <laughs> filming a Commodore documentary. That's not going to happen at any other wedding. <laughs> well, the Amiga kind of saved my day a bit as well, because um, night before, well, it was actually a few days before, I want my, my missus got these little, like, table cards, you know, where you put people's names on yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And she come home with a pack, about four or five packs of them. She goes... Um, is there any way we can print onto these? And I thought, that's going to be easy. I've got like this, um, you know, HP scanner printer thing. thought I can use that wireless printer. That'll be easy enough to do. It wouldn't take these little cards. No matter what I did, I couldn't resize it. You know, it would just come through and think there's no paper in it. Yeah, yeah. It, w- it wouldn't feed yeah, the cards. So, oh, the A4, yeah. yeah. So, and I tried it on the laser printer here at work. And I thought, what am I going to do? And all the guides I looked at online, it was always like, um, you know, yeah, you can make these cards on it, but on a sheet of A4, then cut them up afterwards. Yeah, yeah. No way to put these pre made cards in. Then I remembered, I thought, when my parents moved house recently, I took all my crap out of the attic, including an old Canon bubble jet. I think it's a BJ10SX printer. And I remember as a kid printing out floppy disk labels on that thing. You know, you'd feed the actual little floppy disk labels in yeah, on yeah, the yeah. line feed button, you press that and it'd come through. So I thought, I wonder if I can get some ink for that. Went on eBay, managed to get six cartridges for it, like new old stock for like nine quid. <laughs> So I just printed the wall out on that, and it worked. It worked Fantastic. a treat. Fantastic, yeah, they look really good when I saw them. Yeah. I couldn't believe it actually worked, yeah, on Final Writer, 97 on the Amiga, so... Well, that's fantastic, <laughs> and um, I got you a nice little present. I, I've got to say thank you to you, and it was Marcel as well. Yeah, yeah, Marcel and Marvin, they yeah, uh, donated, so yeah. I've got an Amiga 3000 now. Oh, I can't wait to see the video, Dan. Oh, it's, you know, I've got a 4000 that I got a few years ago, but the 3000, I think, is by far my, my favourite, you know, it's, a lot of people say it's the best Amiga, don't they? Yeah, yeah, it's a really sexy machine and yeah. it's kind of scuzzy, but also it doesn't need a scan doubler, so you can just plug it straight into a monitor. Yeah. Boom. Well, I watch him. Um, you know, Steve Jones on, on yeah, YouTube? Yeah. He's done a few videos about the 3000. Ever since I saw that, I really want one. So, best wedding present ever. Obviously, it was there just for me, not Samantha. Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> you got her a sewing machine there. Yeah, That's yeah, I got nice. an old school yeah. sewing machine. Yeah, yeah, I like retro gifts, you see. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what, what a wedding we, ha- we had as well. I've got to say thank you so much because you put a picture up, didn't you, on, uh, on the yeah, retro yeah. page? I couldn't go through and thank everybody because there's so many of them, but... Really nice comments, guys. It yeah, was. thank you so much. I was expecting a lot more abuse than that. <laughs> there was a few, like, you know, uh, that's it, he's going to have to sell all his computer and console yeah, collection am- Amigas in the bins. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, really appreciate all your best wishes, guys. It means the world to us. Thank you so much. Right then, into this week's news stories. Now, obviously, one of our favourite guests that we've had on the show, we've had loads of brilliant guests, but we managed to score the legend that is Rob Hubbard on the show a few months ago. I'd say he's the absolute best at kind of this old C64 music. He's just fantastic. And 
He's doing a Kickstarter now. This has been needed for ages. We've had stuff from Alistair Brimbo. We've had stuff from Chris Holsbeck. Now we're getting Rob Hubbard, and this is Project Hubbard. Now, King Rob is going to be putting out that not only a hardback book, I guess talking about his times working on, you know, Sid tracks and video yeah. games, and um, he's also back in the studio with new Sid projects, a Commodore 64 cart, and maybe the London Symphony Orchestra. Well, this is... Rob mentioned that he had a lot of unreleased and rare material. Yeah. He's got a double album worth. So that's going to be released with this. That, this is for the basic backers. But also, what he's going to be doing is he's going to be creating a studio album. So this is Hubbard 80. This isn't going to be done on 164 in a studio. Mm-hmm. This is going to be done with all the original synthesizers, you know, the Moogs and everything, but they're going to be putting the sequences through of the original kind of C64 tunes and making it a real studio experience. There's a little sample, isn't there, Dan? Well, he's actually, there's a little message I've seen from Rob himself on the Kickstarter page. So let's have a little listen. Hi, this is uh, Rob speaking. Um, finally glad to see that this project is underway and um, that people have shown a lot of interest in this. Um, I'm extremely honoured and flattered that people seem to remember the work that I did back in the 80s and some people remember the stuff I did in the 90s. It's a great honour that people have showed interest and want to pledge their cash into this. See, I just think, you know, anyone who grew up playing C64 music, I mean, there's a little ticker underneath that mentions his games, International Karate, Knuckle Busters. You know, these games that everyone played, Monty on the Run, the Monty series. Well, well, that's it. It's like, he's not remixing me. He's kind of making a beautiful studio album. And yep. it's like, you're going to get higher quality versions of this. But also, the stretch goal is an 8-bit symp- symphony, which is a full concert, which will involve the London Symphony Orchestra doing Rob Hubbard tunes. That That's just mind-blowing. Yeah. And I think this is going to reach it. You know, I think Rob's got enough kind of support out there to get there. Yeah, I mean, looking at the time we're recording this show, I mean, it's well, it's almost there anyway, and it's still got a couple of weeks left. It's going to finish on a Sunday, November the 5th. So, I, you know, I don't think there's no chance this is not going to make it. I'm definitely backing it. I just, I want to get Rob's tunes on vinyl. (laughs) That's that's my aim. Again, it's like, the the fact is, what I love about this is you're also going to get 10 new Rob Hubbard Sid tracks. It's like, you know... I imagine, you know, all the songs that we really love of his were kind of like 20, 30 years ago. So I imagine with his kind of more experience he's got over time, these are probably going to be some of his best works ever. Yeah, or they might be really cool classic ones that are from 10 years ago that that he didn't even, uh, like, release and just puts them out and they could be mind-blowing. You never know. And I I think it's awesome that Rob's actually understands the demand now. And he's a very modest guy, isn't he? He's very humble, yeah. Yeah. And he's kind of always amazed that people are interested in his stuff still. But, you know, he's such a pioneer in this industry. It's amazing. And, yeah, like you said, he's going to essentially recreate a 1979 studio to kind of work the SID chip in there and push that to its limits and work around it as well, I guess. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, he's going to put all the stuff through the original old-school synths as well. So. There's a clip of that if you want to hear it. Yeah, what it sounds go like it, going yeah. through it all. Okay, here you go. Sounds like uh, Jean-Michel Jarre, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> Very warm. Yeah. He was quite influenced by him, though, wasn't he? Yeah, I remember definitely. him saying, yeah. So, this is awesome. Again, it's like... 
new Rob Hubbard music. Come on, you've got to support oh, this legend. Gosh. So if you want to back this Kickstarter and uh, we implore everybody to do so, uh, we'll put that in our show notes this week at theretrohour.com and uh, hopefully they're going to get that delivered um, in just over a year, apparently, I reckon by April 2019. So you're in a bit, so imagine getting that concert. Oh, my God. Yeah, Mind-blowing. Now, talking about the arcades back in the day, were there any arcade machines that you always made a beeline for at the seaside or...? It sounds a bit late, but Crazy Taxi was yeah. one, and Time Crisis 2. And I remember my girlfriend, X, used to get really annoyed with me because I'd put 50p in, yeah. and I'd say, just one game on Time Crisis, and then complete it. Yeah. And she'd be <laughs> stood there hours for later. hours, yeah. Like, uh. For me, it was always Mortal Kombat. Yeah, Mortal Kombat was great, yeah, yeah. But I never actually saw that many arcade units of it. I'd see it, like, if I visit another arcade, but there wasn't one locally. Yeah, when I went to, like, um, went to Scarborough, I'd see it there, and... And I think when we were kids, I had an auntie who actually worked at um, Pontins. She was like a, a blue coat yeah, <laughs> at yeah. Pontins. So I remember we'd go and stay with her now and then. It was always like, you know, an awful holiday. Heidi, hi. <laughs> exactly like that, yeah. So cheesy. And they'd have like cabarets on and all that. But actually, the, the Pontins she worked at, it's over in the Northwest. I can't remember. It was in like a, it had like a tower. That's all I remember about it. And I think it got it actually got turned into a prison in the end. I think so. <laughs> says it all. They just put bars on the windows. That <laughs> yeah, was yeah, it. Probably not, not much difference. But it had a massive arcade in the middle, I remember. And that was like my brother and I were just staying there every night, feeding, like going back to my mum and dad. And they'd give us like a fiver to get rid of us for a few hours. Then we'd come back, Dad, can we have some more money, please? And we just played Mortal Kombat all night. I think the year we went was when Mortal Kombat 2 first came out. And I, I've always loved, I mean, I love the Mortal Kombat series anyway. I know when I was a kid, it was either between me and my mates, it was obviously the Street Fighter 2 or Mortal Kombat, which one you like best. Mm. I was always firmly on the Mortal Kombat side. And I think number two is my favourite in the series. And if, if I could own probably any arcade machine in my house, it would be a Mortal Kombat 2 cabinet. Actually, you've just reminded me, track and field. Oh, I, to waggle the... Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to play that all the time because uh, I used to go camping when I was a kid and there was a few at campsites. And you just have mad track and field contests with the kids. Yeah. Is that why you've got some such strong wrist muscles? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that training. <laughs> that explains it. So, uh, well, there is actually, someone's modded um, the Mortal Kombat 2 arcade ROM. Okay. And there's been a few of these done. Um, but this is really good. This is called Mortal Kombat 2 Plus. And this guy's released a public beta of it. And essentially what he's done is, you can actually download this ROM, you can install it on kind of your own, maybe your main cabinet if you've got one at home. And he's unlocked a lot of the stuff that was kind of hidden in this game and added a few new things in there as well, um, including uh, the setting screens come straight on now. They've got turbo mode in there as well. The ability to reset unlocks random ladders in the game too. Uh, endurance matches, uh, pools of blood. You can like enable those, have like much more bloody effects than the original. A corrected Goro's Lair, a new cheat system, a combo hit counter shown on the screen as well. And also, you can. Um, there are some like, obviously hidden characters in there, Mortal yeah. Kombat, that you have to unlock in certain ways. He's working on getting those so they're actually playable characters as well. So I think it's really cool because, you know, Mortal Kombat, everybody's played ports of it and have yeah. kind of... As, as the systems get lesser and lesser, the ports get worse and worse. So kind of um, having the original arcade ROM and playing off that, wow, yeah. it must be a total different experience. Well, there's uh, Kintaro and Khan, I think they're kind of the hidden characters in the game and okay. apparently they're working on making those playable as well from what I see in the cool. comments here too. But again, it's just having, I think... If you've got like a main cabinet with this installed and you want to upgrade it to this like kind of enhanced edition, especially when your friends come over, they're going to be like, you know, if they know the game, they'll be like, whoa, what have you done here? (laughs) It's always cool to have like mods, I think. So, Oh, totally. And, you know, Mortal Kombat fans are totally passionate and there's a big crew of them. I've even seen, you know, Mortal Kombat cosplay everywhere. And at play, we saw some of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I love Mortal Kombat to this day. In Mortal Kombat X, you know, on the or XL on the on the Xbox One, my brother and I play that like pretty much every Friday afternoon. We we boot that up and play it on remote um, online play. Love the Mortal Kombat series, and I think now that we've got married, we want to get get a bigger place next year. I've got to finally get myself an arcade cabinet. Oh, totally. If if you get one, I've, one thing I've always wanted to do is uh, you could get an Amiga CD32 to jam a board. Okay, how's that work? It, it basically comes out the back of the CD32, goes straight into a jammer arcade cabinet, and then you can control everything through there and oh, no use way. it as a <laughs> as an actual unit. Yeah, make your own custom one. Well, bring your soldering iron round. Yeah, <laughs> but I've, I, I do remember I used to watch um, a series on Revision Three, and these might still be on YouTube. Remember Revision Three used to do like a System and Dignation those yeah, shows, yeah. and that, there is actually um, like a series on System. Patrick Norton hosted it. I think it was probably on about 2007, eight on YouTube. And he shows you pretty much start to finish how to make a main cabinet, even how to carve all the wood and everything and where to get the buttons oh, wow. from and everything. So that, That's really fantastic because I remember Hyperspin yeah. was one of the uh, big distributions on there and uh, it looks massively compact. So I tried to run it on my PC, had no luck, but um, that was with a wireless Xbox pad. Yeah, But I can imagine having it all hooked in. You yeah. know, you can go on um, certain websites and find big builds of Hyperspin, uh, maybe 90 or 100 gig download them and then you've got everything pre-listed and everything. Really. I mean, when we were at play last weekend, it was like, you know, you'd often see tables and they'd have like the arcade buttons and the joysticks. A lot of, yeah, you know, they do yeah. sell them at these events. So, you know, the... Yeah, all the spare bits are there, aren't they? In these big boxes, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's got to be my project for next year, I think, so... Totally. You've got to get the 3,000 souped up first, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Too much to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Need a bigger house now as well. Now, do you remember when you were a kid when you first got on the internet? Back in the 90s? Yep. How did you talk to your friends back then? Before Facebook Messenger, before the days of Twitter, Facebook? I, I used uh, ICQ, AIM, and IRC. Mm-hmm. That was it. I still use IRC, actually. That's probably the only one that I still use. Yeah. I remember Yahoo Messenger was around. But you mentioned AIM there as well. That was America's uh, America Online Instant Messenger, wasn't it? AOL. Yeah, and I'd never used AOL service because it seemed really American and we had like Demon and stuff in the UK, so we didn't really need it, but the messenger got really popular. I remember getting, though, the AOL CDs through the door. They would send them. Uh, yeah, 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 and have hundreds of them. Yeah, and, you know, just... I actually, Use them as tea coasters. <laughs> so well, many. I once in my bedroom actually made uh, blinds out of CDs <laughs> in my bedroom, so like, of my window. They were held together with... Do you know on um, on trainers when you get the uh, the little label on it was like a little chain that went around? Yeah, yeah. And I put them all together with those because my auntie worked in like a shop where she got the trainer like little chain things. They were really cool. And it, when the window was open, they'd all rattle together. But pretty much most of them were AOL CDs and free stuff that came through the door. So, uh, but I I did use AIM for a little bit. Now, if you were kind of you know on AOL Messenger back in the day, you might remember these sound effects. <laughs> You know, that's really weird, the doors. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That's when someone messaged you, wasn't it? (laughs) I remember what that one was. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. But again, it's like, those sound effects are so nostalgic. Even though I didn't use it for very long. I think when I first got a Mac, because Apple used to have like a messenger client that kind of piggybacked onto the back of AOL Messenger, that's probably where I used it more, but... Well, because I remember the away messages were a big thing. Mm. So, like, you know, your your away status. Like, later on in MSM, you could get what tunes you were listening to and put it in yeah. your status. But AOL was the first one with away messages where you'd be, like, some emotional lyrics in there to make yourself seem really, like, deep. <laughs> and then you'd... Type in your favourite Spice Girls song lyrics. Yeah, yeah, that would be, yeah. <laughs> 
But so the story is that they've finally closed AIM down. I couldn't believe it was still going, yeah. to be honest. Like, <laughs> That's a bigger shock, I think. And the, and the amazing thing is that bulletin board systems and IRC has kind of outlasted all of these uh, strange little messenger services and stuff. Well, MSN Messenger got shut down. It wasn't that long ago, was it? About maybe two or three years ago, they kind of um, they incorporated it into Skype, didn't they? Moved everyone over yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. And I remember ICQ as well. Um, that got bought up by... I think it was Yahoo or yeah. someone like that. But I've got a feeling there is, because wasn't ICQ like an open protocol? And I think there is kind of like free versions of it now where you just, you know, you can actually still use a service in like a different Maybe. kind of Maybe. I remember the best thing about that was you could chat to random people and you could choose random people in the area and then just connect with them and start chatting madness. On ICQ? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, my user, remember the usernames were like someone like 95017. He's have that at the bottom of my email signature. But you know, it, again, it's like, like you said, no one's really using these services anymore. But when you read about them being closed down, I mean, AOL Instant Messenger was created in, uh, in 1997. And apparently it hasn't quite closed down yet. They're going to shut the service down on the 15th of December this year. Well, so. in uh, at certain circles, we used to use ICQ. Well, no, at certain circles, you used to use ICQ um, to notify them of when victims would come online for uh, hacking. Oh, really? Yeah, because as soon as anybody would come on on their PC, they'd have ICQ set to start up when Windows starts. So whenever they went online, doom victim one is online <laughs> oh what keyloggers and all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah, oh, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Stuff, yeah. you don't speak from experience there obviously Ravi just no no read no about I don't that, know I imagine, anything yeah. about it <laughs> but I mean you've got to give it to AIM it outlived MSM Messenger so. oh totally yeah and MSM was like crack after school <laughs> <laughs> I remember at college like you know we, we got like Windows 98 PCs and like I think didn't MSM Messenger come with Windows 98 didn't it yeah it did and I remember that later feature with MSM where you could send audio. Right, okay. And I'd just be going around my mate's house and he'd have MSM left on and there'd be people screaming down the mics, hip-hop beats, <laughs> like everything, just going off continually. And he'd be like, oh, it's just my MSM, ignore it. <laughs> but it got banned from our college, though, because everyone, you know, they, they upgraded from 95 to 98, like probably in about 2000 or something. Yeah. But then everyone just be chatting on it all day, then they got wise to it. So we all got banned from MSN in the end, the blocked the ports, I think. But it's kind of, you know, because everyone's uses Facebook Messenger and stuff these days, but that is, I suppose, just a development of like AIM and MSN Messenger really, isn't it? Yeah, totally. It's just kind of a bit lamer now, actually. It doesn't seem like such a cool inside club as it did before. Yeah. And you remember all those nicknames you'd have with like, you know, weird like, you know, like brackets the, oh, the and squiggly yeah, lines squares, that, Yeah, and... ASCII art got involved there, definitely. <laughs> so if you want to jump on at AIM before it goes offline, you've only got like, well, about six weeks left to do it before it shuts down forever. So I might give it a little download and give it a send off. I won't remember logging anymore though. <laughs> so another retro console is on the market if you want a bit of physical hardware then, eh? Tell us about the retro bit. Well, this is an actual company retro bit, and we've covered one of their systems before, but I went onto their website, and oh my God, we've missed a lot, Dan. They have got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten systems here, and they've got uh, like these cool little top loaders. So it's like a NES Mini. Yeah. It's called a NES Top Loader, and it's only $24. And you can kind of put your original cart in and just play on that. They've got a Genesis X which is a hybrid console that plays both of the kind of Sega systems, so Master System and Genesis. But then they've got a Retro Duo Portable as well, which looks really like the Switch. That's you know, nuts. Yeah, well, I'm looking yeah. at this uh, Gen X thing here as well, and apparently not only does it play uh, 
Yeah, it plays Mega Drive cartridge. It plays NES cartridges as well, apparently, which is quite random. It looks pretty cool. It does look a bit like, you know, you can tell it's heavily inspired by the, the Mega Drive appearance. Yeah, and this uh, retro duo portable, is it looks like a Switch, but you can shove fat SNES cartridges <laughs> in the back and then basically play on it. That looks pretty good. And that's $89. Yeah, so these okay. prices are really, really actually reasonable for these things. If you could find them in the UK, mm. you know, you'll have a little bargain there. And it plays NES and SNES games. Yeah, so well. a lot of them And have, Mega Drive games. Yeah, well. a lot of them have dual purposes. So if you go out and check the... Um, Retrobit.com, we'll put a link in the bottom, and it has all of their consoles online. They look like a pretty cool company, and I imagine they're making these themselves. I did actually see that Retro Geo thing on GameSec. I do yeah. remember them talking about that, actually, and uh, I think they're quite a lot of fun with that, actually. So but You know, this whole range, it's like, wow. It's absolutely fantastic, yeah. the, the, the Retro Duos. But then these little NES top loaders just must be so cheap. Yeah, I can't well, believe it, Twenty four ninety nine. I always think it's cool that people build physical hardware. I mean, obviously you can do emulation and all that, but it's not as sexy, is it? No, no, not at all. And these, these consoles look great. And speaking of uh, avoiding emulation, we had Joe <laughs> um, talking about his SNES Mini, obviously recently that he got hold of. They've cracked it. Of course they have. <laughs> of course they've cracked it. So um, you can now play uh, illegally downloaded games on your SNES Mini, and it's... Uh, using a custom system of flashing it. Okay. And uh, you basically kind of hatchy, which is the big program that everybody uses for kind of hacking these Nintendo products or, or getting firmware into them. It was used on the Wii U. It was uh, used on the Switch before, and they're using it now at the moment. So you can kind of use this service hatchy and load games into there off it. Like uh, they've got an example. SimCity that they're loading onto it. I mean, essentially, put any ROM on, I guess. Then, because it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, got a, got an emulator on there, an emulator on there, so you can just download any ROMs, I guess, you want onto it. I guess so. Yeah, totally. And uh, it basically connects to a shared uh, FTP, mm. so it has kind of the games on there. So uh, I, I don't know if you can um, add original stuff on there. Or... All right, so it streams the games. It's kind of like that. It's like you have to connect to the M, uh, to the FTP, then load it into Hatchy, and then it gets loaded into your system. Okay, interesting. It's like a little bridge, you see, because Nintendo block off these things, so they need to find a little way of getting in. For example, on my Wii U, um, if I go onto the browser and then go onto a certain site, I can access the exploit through that, and then it knocks me into the kind of menu with all the uh, Wii U exploit store on it and all of this stuff so so is it essentially like um you know if you jailbreak an iphone you get cydia is it kind of like a, a yeah a secondary it's, it's, store? It's, it's like jailbreaking it yeah okay totally see you i remember you when you told me you hacked your wii u you yeah. did that in like what took you 10 minutes five minutes yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's crazy it's just finding a way of getting into there because you can't load it off the sd card or you can't do this so this is the alternate method some people are saying here you know if you don't mind pirating i'm not sure why you would have bought one in the first place but again you're, you're paying on like it's the hardware and the, the controller, and it's a nice system. Well, well also the apps as well. So, for example, on the Wii U, there's a there's a paint app that's not available on the normal one Yeah, that you can use. It's really nice. So, you know, there's stuff at the moment you can't really play videos on the Switch. You can't browse YouTube. There may be unsupported YouTube apps coming out, video browsers, stuff to make it a bit more useful. 
I did read a way, actually, that you that may have patched this. I've not tried it on mine. A way that you can access a web browser on the Switch. That was by going to, like, you know, looking at the T's and C's at the beginning. And there's a bit there where it's like, you know, click here to find out more. Then it actually opens a web browser. Then you can view source or <laughs> yeah, something yeah, and type it see, in. Yeah, there is a way to get into a web browser. Yeah, yeah. It, so. There's always a way with Nintendo, you know, because the system's based on something. And they've obviously kind of worked out how to get onto that top layer. They just need to find a little gap. You know, the fact that it was hacked so quickly, it kind of proves, you know, that people want a less restrictive library on there. But what still blows my mind is, you know, they brought out this SNES Mini and they still didn't put a Wi-Fi chip and, like, access a virtual console on it. What They're missing such a trick. Yeah, it's really weird, that is. And I guess because maybe they haven't released it yet because uh, they're, they're, they're scared of hackers. <laughs> <laughs> so they're trying to fix every hole, put it out later. You know, like, I think... Surely they've got to have a YouTube app on there and they've got to have a video player. Well, has, has a SNES Mini even got like a... Can it go online? I don't know. I, I don't, don't think, think it can. <laughs> no, so that's that's what I mean. Why have they not put a Wi-Fi chip in there? Yeah. Surely it costs pennies. And they're going to make that up. I mean, if you've got space on the system, obviously there is room left on it because people are hacking it and putting all these extra games I on there. I don't know. We, we have to get Joe here because I, all we need to buy is SNES Mini. <laughs> well, I saw one in CEX today for 145 quid. So, oh, uh, dear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I may hold off for a little while, I think. But I saw someone selling one for a soul, a human soul on Craigslist today. <laughs> Bargain. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, again, I've, I've got the original SNES, so I, I, I know Joe has as well. I don't really see any reason that I want a SNES Mini. Um, but I, I think it's cool, you know, for people that do just want to play the old games and they don't want to mess around with the original hardware and everything, but it still blows my mind that Nintendo are missing such a big trick. Because you get that system and you play the games that are on it, then surely it's going to whet your appetite for other games that you remember that are not on there. Totally. So, crazy. Right then, well, thank you for checking out episode number 93 of the Retro Hour podcast. I mean, I thought that in conversation there was quite interesting about modding stuff. I would be quite interested to know if people have, like, you know, hacked or modded anything and, like, you know, what their kind of favourite mods or hacks are. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because a lot of people are like, oh, you shouldn't hack it. And it's like, you know, you, you've bought this hardware. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to stick in Nintendo's world. Well, that's what I believe. Well, you own it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. At the end so. of the day. So, uh, yeah, if you've got any interesting mods or hacks, let us know about them. Maybe find some videos on YouTube. You can always email us, show at theretrohour.com. And if you do listen on uh, iTunes or Stitcher, any of those services, of course, we really appreciate uh, all of your five-star ratings, all of your reviews as well. It's actually been a little bit quiet on a review front recently, so... Yeah, ooh, yeah. Nice uh, we, we had a nice one on iTunes the other day, but we could do with some more. Absolutely. So please do keep those coming in. Helps us rise up the iTunes charts. Maybe of the week, we're like, what, number four or five? Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. Thanks, guys. So, uh, yeah, obviously that, you know, puts us in front of loads of new listeners. So please do keep those coming in, guys. And, of course, you can tweet us at RetroHourUK. Same on Instagram. We've got a Facebook page as well. All of those you'll find on our website, theretrohour.com. All right, then. Are you ready for this week's special guest? Let's oh. talk, talk about Ocean Software. All those muscly guys and beautiful ladies. <laughs> Rabbit's getting excited. <laughs> Batman as well, what a game. Uh, Bob Wakelin, the guy who pretty much was responsible for all of those amazing Ocean Software box arts and all the posters you used to see in magazines and stuff. What an absolute superstar. Here he is, this week's special guest, the amazing Bob Wakelin on the Retro Hour podcast. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest of the show, Bob Wakelin. Thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. 
Now, Bob, we're going to get, obviously, those, I'm sure, very interesting stories about your time at Ocean in just a bit. But this is a question we always like to ask everybody. Uh, just to kind of set the scene a little bit, what was your first ever computer experience then? Do you remember when you first experienced one? Yeah, well, see, I wasn't really much of a gamer at all. Um, most of my gaming was was done in the pub. So I was playing things like Galaxian, I think. That was probably my first experience. No, that, that old tennis, table tennis game. Oh, Pong. That's the one. That's the one I first played. A friend had it, and I'd go around and we'd play it. But I'd sort of lose interest within three hours. Well, I know with Pong, a lot of people said it was kind of a, a bit of a miracle because you were actually manipulating something that happened on the screen, and that was kind of a new thing, I guess. It was. It? it was an odd thing. And how it could, you know, considering how simple it was, it would really grab you. And uh, you couldn't. You couldn't drag yourself away at all. But I think most of my, most of the gaming I really enjoyed was things like um, Space Invaders, Galaxian, and those those earlier um, coin-op games. Um, but really, I never I never bothered after that because I, I obviously with me being older than the kids that got it, got into it, then I, I really kind of missed the boat. I'm playing the games themselves. Um, I, you know, I, basically, I had other things to do at my age yeah. than sit around playing computer <laughs> games. More interesting things, probably. <laughs> Loads more interesting, I'd say. <laughs> well, did you actually get a computer at home then, or did you did you not bother at first? No, no, never had one. Hmm. Um, I'd look at, I'd go around to other people's places if I wanted to. On the other occasion, I did play a game. I'd play it at somebody else's house. Um, there was no room for it in, in, in my life, really, because I was either drawing or drinking or other indulgences, whatever I could, you know, <laughs> could find to do at the time. Well, um, what kind of things did you kind of start sketching when you were a kid? I, I read in an interview that you you started drawing explosions and like big car crashes and stuff like that. Yeah, it's funny that because I rem- the first things I really remember doing was drawing like the cones of volcanoes and puffs of smoke coming out, little stick men flying through the air with little legs coming off and heads and things. Um, and yeah, it wasn't so much car crashes because I couldn't draw a car, even a simple one. But uh, yeah, disasters, really simple disasters. Airplanes was a good one. Two airplanes crashing and loads of people falling out. That was a favourite. I, I used to sketch uh, nuclear bombs, you know, the mushroom <laughs> clouds. That's what oh, yeah. been quite good. <laughs> All that aggression gets out. Yeah, it's teenage aggression. I think I might have done that at one point, uh, nuclear bombs. I think I, I picked up on the <clears throat> people falling out of airplanes because I, I lived near an Air Force base and they used to um, have practice runs of parachuting over our house. <laughs> and um, like loads, loads of airmen had just like parachute out when I was a kid. And like the land, literally, you know, a hundred, two hundred yards away from the house. Oh, wow! So um, that that was a big influence on me for the rest of my life. 
Well, um, the British kind of comic book scene was really kicking off in the 80s and 70s. Uh, did you have any particular favourites? I liked I liked 2000 AD. Um, and when I was young, because I kind of grew up in the 60s, so I liked The Eagle and stuff like that. And then I, I loved 2000 AD. Um, but I was mainly interested in American comic books. It, they just blew me away, you know, because I'd, I'd grown up just reading, you know, tanks, the stories of huge muscular men sort of punching tanks and things in the British comics. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you had um, Dan Dare and characters like that in the, uh, the British ones, and there yeah, was a lot more yeah. American. Which which I kind of enjoyed, but I, I got into the American stuff in you know in the sixties basically, um, and mainly because there was because of that air force base that was near me, there was um, a lot of Americans there, American um, air force guys who used to bring their used comics around and give them to everybody. So that really hooked me. What was the first time you ever made money from art? You know, when oh you... God. You actually got commissioned, or even if it was just do a sketch for a, for a mate, you know. Um, oh my God, I don't think I ever made any money until I got a job for not for that long, really. Maybe for five years, six years, um, and it was at a studio in Liverpool, and that was the first time I got paid to draw, basically. Um, so I worked for them for, as I say, maybe five years. And then I went freelance after that. Um, and at that point, I was doing rock posters uh, for the uni student university. So I was, you know, um, something completely unrelated to what I ended up doing. But then you look at, like, you know, albums on the rock scene, usually they had quite epic pieces on the, the LP covers and stuff, didn't they? I mean, did, Oh, yeah. Did that yeah. kind of carry over a bit into the game stuff later on, that style? I guess subconsciously it would have had an effect on me. You know, there was, obviously there was the guy who did the Yes sleeves, and, you know, which at the time I absolutely loved and now I can't bear to look at. Um, yeah, there, there was, there would have been an influence on me there. Um, but only only for a very short period, because really the rock rock was something that wore off on me, or that kind of prog rock very quickly. I, I kind of grew out of it. Well, for a guy that wasn't all that into video games, it's quite quite interesting that you ended up designing the box art for Ocean then. So how, how did you get to work with Ocean Software? Um, that was purely through... I mean, it was, it was kind of accidental, really. Um, there was a guy I knew... He was a bit older than me, and he was a he was a, a decent artist, an airbrush artist, in his own right, and he knew David Ward, so he was working on these, doing these quite small sketches about A5, and um, he asked me. I just bumped into him. He said, "Oh, I'm going to meet this guy. Do you want to come along? I'm going to the pub." So we went to the pub, and, I, and so I met him talked to him for a bit and then I did a, a job for him and he immediately said yeah do you want to work for us so I said yeah okay I mean at the time um I wasn't it was mainly advertising work I was doing which was boring me to tears you know so that kind of that came along in good 
with, well, with very good timing for me. Were you, were you aware of how kind of big Ocean was at the time? Not a clue. Not a clue. I mean, I, made, I met Dave Ward in his house um, when I first, that's right, I delivered the artwork to him at his, his apartment in Liverpool. So I still didn't really know much about this at all, except that he paid me immediately, you know. So that was all I cared about, really. It was like, one, I hope you like it, two, give me the money. So I, I didn't really know anything about the games at all, the industry, not a damn thing. I was shown a lot of stuff, and I just thought most of it looked pretty bad. So I thought, basically, look, I could do better than that. So so that's what I did, really. Uh, some of the early ones, I don't think, were much better because I wasn't really trying. I just thought I could do this really easily, you know? Well, what were the first projects that you worked on at Ocean? Uh, the one that I think the first one I did, now, I can't guarantee this, but I think the first one I did was Road Frog. Um, there was another one, Caterpillar. I think there was that one, which was dreadful, awful <laughs> bit of artwork. Um, I've, I've got a feeling that I did, I probably did maybe five or six, all in a couple of weeks. Um, Moon Alert, that was another one. But I was supposed to split this with the other guy, who's called Blair Wilkins. But Blair would never turn up when, you know, I'd say, well, can you get round at nine o'clock because we were sharing a space and we'll get stuck into this and he'd turn up at like three in the afternoon and, <laughs> you know and he, he was like always stoned so <laughs> we could never ever sort of meet deadlines if it was just if it was always going to be me and him and eventually um, I just took over the whole thing because the deadline thing was too much for him so I, I basically took all his work and left him to die in the gutter. <laughs> I, bet, I bet it was a bit of a relief doing your first kind of solo pieces where you could actually oh, get God, it out was, in time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really liked the guy, um, but trying to, to get anything done for a deadline was incredibly difficult, you know. And, um, and, that, and when it comes down to it, that business is all about deadlines, you know. Being an illustrator is always about deadline. Well, obviously you're working freelance then. And I mean, did, did Ocean make you feel like really welcome when you turned up? I know like uh, I heard stories that you and Steve Blower used to uh, go out and sink a few. <laughs> quite we regularly. did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good right from the start. It was, it was fun. Um, and I've got to say, you know, that, that most of the people there were pretty cool. You know, it was one or two that I probably didn't get on with that much. But generally speaking, yeah, that, they, they were great. I got on really well with David Ward, and um, I see Blower was, was a top guy, totally. So was it quite a social job? I guess you kind of didn't have to sit at a desk in a suit and kind of produce your work. How did you get it done? I, I worked at home. I was freelancing, so I would eat, I'd get a phone call. And I'd say maybe I would either get some stills sent to me in the, in the post, like screenshots, or I would go over to Ocean and see a demo of the game and get some kind of character sketches and work from there 
and so obviously I could work dressed or not dressed in whatever I wanted to uh, working at home. Can't be working in your pyjamas. No, I mean, there were, there were days when I, I got up, I just, like, made some coffee, and then suddenly it was, like, 9 o'clock in the evening, you know, and I was st- still sitting there in my boxes. <laughs> well, that's the thing, I guess you can't force creativity. It either comes or it doesn't, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's got nothing to do with anything other than what comes out of your head mm-hmm. and either your, your pencil, your brush, or, you know, in my case at the time, the airbrush as well, you know, I mean... The, the way you look and the way you present yourself has absolutely nothing to do with creativity. Well, a bit further down the road, obviously, we had um, Imagine Software in Liverpool, um, and you got to work with those guys as well. How, how did you get involved with them? Well, to be honest, I didn't work for Imagine until um, Ocean bought them. Yeah. So I was only working then when, when David Ward asked me to do stuff for Imagine, which is no longer Imagine. So I didn't really know those guys at all. To be honest, all I knew about them was uh, the program on TV where they, the bailiffs were sent in, <laughs> and one of one of the guys was a big friend of mine. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, the first guy on the uh, the first one uh, to enter the building was this guy who lived like literally thirty yards from me, who uh, drove the truck. It was his truck that took everything away. I was like, oh, my God. I remember that scene in that documentary, like the the staff go on their lunch break and they come back and they can't get in. And yeah, the bailiffs are just there, aren't they? Yeah. And uh, I had a really odd relationship with him because after that, because I thought, well, I don't like bailiffs, you know. But I knew this guy, you know, so I had to talk to him and said, like, I'm not not fond of this, mate. You know, you going in taking people's stuff. And he just said, Bob, I just drive the van. They they hire it from me. Um, I drive it and they do the business, you know. That was my excuse for remaining friends with him anyway. <laughs> well, obviously around that time, I mean, you know, imagine we're infamous almost for the, the mega games that they were working on, like Bandersnatch and um, Cyclops and that. I mean, did, did you ever see any of those games or was there anything left of, around that time when Ocean got them? To be honest, all I saw of those games was adverts, hmm. really. Um, and maybe if I walk past, um, you know, one of the small computer game shops back in those days, you know, so I was I was aware of the names, but I'd never seen the games. In fact, I was aware of a lot of the names because especially, you know, I, I looked a bit more into the history of it. And at that point, the history was only a couple of years, you know, um, just to kind of get myself a bit more embedded in that scene before I carried on, you know, because I didn't want to completely go off on the wrong track. Was there a point where you kind of went into a shop and sort of a shelf of all your designs on it and kind of thought, wow, this is much bigger than I thought? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was. And, uh, I, I, as you say, I didn't really realise, you know, and, and going in probably would have been, I don't know, maybe 85. And uh, I've been working for Ocean for two and a half years maybe then and and saw that you know half of the the boxes there were mine you know were oceans with my covers and that was a bit odd really and uh quite amusing well did you ever see any uh kids reactions to them at the time or like you know uh it was the incentive to grab it off the shelf that kind of image you know? it was really amusing once 
I, I can't remember what shop I was in. And um, there were a couple of kids just standing there, sort of going, look at the cover, man. And like another one saying, oh, I've heard the game's crap, you know. <laughs> but look at the cover, look at the cover. <laughs> and then I'm going, oh, that's a great cover. You should buy that uh, one. <laughs> that's really good, that. And then they, yeah, go off and buy it. Not that I was getting royalties. So I was, I was kind of, even then, I was helping Ocean out. <laughs> but the thing, I mean, you know, it's an interesting point, because I remember going out and buying, like, you know, Commodore games from, like, a, you know, Boots or whatever, or, or W.H. Smith, and you would, because, you know, the graphics were quite primitive then, and you turn around the screenshots, you know, weren't always amazing, but the front of the box, I guess, even more back in the day, had to draw you in and, like, kind of make the sale, really, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was trying to do, because I, I just thought so many... So many of the boxes were amateurish. There, there, were a, there were a handful that stood out as being of better quality. But the, my approach was always to try and have a kind of central figure to it that sucked you in, you know? So that instead of trying to depict kind of religiously what was going on in the game or all I wanted to do was catch a kid's eye. You know, which I think I was good at doing because in my head, I was and still am a kid. And I respond to that now, you know. If I go in a comic shop and I'm not that interested in comics anymore, but I can walk past the cover and go, right, I'll have that. You know, and I'll, I'll pick something up just because of the cover, <laughs> tear the cover off it and put it in a file. We were talking about Imagine a, a moment ago and that documentary, that was kind of the... Uh... You know, that kind of gave the impression that the British video games industry in the mid-80s was very extravagant. You know, there's all these, like, 20-year-old oh, kids driving Ferraris yeah. and all that. I mean, I did know. you see much of that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. It was all programmers. That that initial thing was insane, wasn't it? You know, the, and the projections of what people were going to earn, everything had gone ballistic. And, of course, it was all unrealistic at that point. I mean, it, it changed, and then the usual thing happened, and the big money guys moved into the industry and took everything for themselves and and then paid wages to these creators instead of them being able to make their own money, uh, like Imagine could have done if they'd have been bloody smarter. It was kind of like that uh, early days of the dot-com era where everybody yeah. just went mad. Yeah. You know? I think it's like that with every fledgling industry, you know, that, that, that seems to be building a following and doing pretty well. And, you know, people just assume they can keep that forever. And it, it's, I find it really sad that, that, you know, suddenly reality hits them and it, it's all taken away and people are left dreaming of the old days when we could do this and when we could do that. I get that being an illustrator, you know. I don't dwell on things, but the way things were compared to the way they are now, it, it was like some kind of weird heaven, you know. Well, uh, being a freelancer as well, you were able to kind of take random hours and do it at your own pace. Did this help when you were getting a, oh, a yeah, workload yeah. of lots? Yeah. And it meant I could work for other people as well. Um I didn't do anything for any other games companies because I, I just figured that that would, wouldn't be fair to Ocean at that point, being as they were paying me really good money to do these sleeves, uh, sorry, these, these boxes. And um, 
And at one point, they actually put me on a retainer to make sure I wouldn't work for anyone else, um, which I I knocked on the head after a year because I felt it was too constricting, you know. Um, so, yeah, I was doing other work, but it just wasn't um, in that industry. Well, I also read around on the internet, there's some people saying you're responsible for the Ocean logo, there's some people saying you're not. Um... No, no, that... I've tried to put this straight a few times in a few interviews and they already had that that font printed um, a kind of dark blue as a letterhead so they already had that blue font exactly as it is today Uh, you know even with the new ocean software like web page and things Um, what I did was zap it up I did the the airbrushing over the top of it and gave it that slightly 3D look. But I didn't create the logo. I just tarted it up, basically. It's an iconic logo, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, and from what I was told, they all they did, they, they needed quickly, when they decided to change from Spectrum Games to Ocean, they needed something really quickly and they went to a local printer said can you do bangers out a logo really quick and they said like you know do you like this typeface Hmm. and it was yeah cool do that um and then within a couple of years then i altered it for them well obviously in the early days of like the games industry like you know copyright wasn't really much of an issue and i know you did the um the cover for contra and then it was was it reused in griser did you have anything to do with that or was it just kind of reused without your permission or no well that that was a weird one that because like griser initially the griser i was shown was completely different it had you know like the background on the the griser that i did um the advert was basically just that background with these kind of alien heads. So they showed me that, and I said, like, it needs a couple of, like, soldiers in there to to really make it work. And I used Arnie as a model. I just found loads of pictures of Arnie and decided which ones to, to basically copy. And then I pasted in the background of the original Grisor that I'd seen, um behind those characters so so that was that that was how it originally started um but since then people have taken that image and used it in lots of different ways you know and if i could be bothered i'd try and sue them but you know i took those pictures of arnie out of some kind of film magazine (laughs) and just altered them you know made made his muscles bigger all the usual stuff you know made his gun more sort of more of a science fiction-y gun, really, and um, changed his haircut. I can't remember now. But um, what, what that brings me on to something, actually. And what I was trying to do in the 80s, like, everybody was into those action movies. Mm. So I was trying to, like, um, apart from the fact that it was good reference, I was trying to form a link between... The games are unlike the and the movies, which were complete. You know, the the movies that were really popular at the time, but not make them absolutely recognisable because that would have caused trouble. You know, obviously. So change some of the features and etc. Move them about a bit. 
I was actually using a lot of that 80s popular culture in those games. That's quite, you know, you can actually see that because, you know, you look at those covers like, you know, Grisor and, uh, you know, Operation Wolf and uh, Green Beret 2. And then kind of your style, I guess, when you got to like Parasol Stars, it was a lot softer, wasn't it, by then? A lot less masculine. Well, yeah, well, I couldn't really have the characters carrying like Kalashnikovs or (laughs) or whatever. It, it might not have gone down too well, you know, sort of bleeding and... That would have been a very different game, it wouldn't would it? It would have been great. <laughs> I'd have really enjoyed that. Um, oh, I hated working on those things, uh, most of them. Uh, I, th- I think it was Parasol Stars or... What was it? Oh, God, what was the other one that... Um, Rainbow Islands 2, was it? Yeah, there's Bubble Bubble, Rainbow Islands... Um, and then Parasol Stars was the third oh, one. Oh, Parasol Stars, yeah. that killed me. I detested that damn game. <laughs> and, like, trying to do something with it, it absolutely drove me bonkers. But um, I really, actually, I, thinking back on it now, I think I really enjoyed doing New Zealand Story. Mm. That was a fun one, you know. But um, I was also worried about mates coming around because I worked at home. And laughing at me for doing these stupid cartoons, you know. <laughs> They're very cutesy, weren't they? Little chicken, wasn't yeah. it? New Zealand story. Yeah. It would have been just like, wow, what are you doing, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> I've been drawing Action Man as well. It's all right. <laughs> I know. It was. Uh, it was a time I was living in. <laughs> Did you have a much kind of control over the final designs, such as like text placement? Did you do anything no. good and have it covered up, or? Well. Occasionally, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to diss um, Steve Blower, but he did put he did do some dodgy stuff on the artwork occasionally, and I, I do I love the guy, you know he's great, but he did some stuff that I really wasn't happy with. But to be to be fair, he was given an almost imp- impossible task, you know, to right you've got to sell this game with these little flashes and blurbs all over it. The logos were always done by me, so you couldn't... And I integrated them into the artwork, so you couldn't mess around with those. Did you ever lose any pieces, like, you know, a misplaced cup of tea or something could have uh, caused a disaster? Yeah, yeah. I lost a few. I can't remember. I I made a mess on on a couple of them, you know, exactly by sort of laughing and spluttering tea over them, you know, or um, the the killer one was always when I was airbrushing. If I hadn't cleaned it properly and I get a big spatter of ink and that is where I developed my spatter style (laughs) (laughs) because it was like, well, how do I cover this up? I know, I'll increase the spatter and it's going to look great. Often the best tricks you discover by accident, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I used to discover... Loads of techniques by accident, by one, being too lazy to go to the art shop, and two, trying to use every last piece of paper that was hanging around. You know, I I wasn't very professional, I'll be honest with you. Did you ever have any interest from, like, America or Japan or any of these people about doing artwork? No, nothing at all. Not not in the games way. You know, I had interest for for doing other things, but um, certainly not in the games world. Um, I think, though, then as well, it was harder to find somebody. Now, people could find me really easily if they wanted to. 
But then, if anybody wanted to get in touch with me, they'd have to go through Ocean, probably. And they're really going to give out my phone number to everybody, aren't they? <laughs> or weren't they? No, they weren't. <laughs> so it, it was a lot more difficult, really. And I never particularly went looking for work, because with... You know, I was doing stuff for Marvel UK at the time, like covers for mags and stuff and posters. You did like Spider-Man and that, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I was doing quite a lot of those at the same time. And uh, between that and the ocean work, I was I was all right financially, you know. I, I didn't really have any, um, any dependents particularly. My wife worked, no kids, lived in a, a flat in Toxteth. So I could do basically anything I wanted to do. So I never went looking for work. I just thought, great, I've got no work on. To the pub. Because, <laughs> I mean, your workload was pretty insane. I mean, I heard you working on, like, you know, sometimes five games at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. In the early days, it was crazy. Um, I'd be given a list. Right. Usually by David Ward. And he'd say, right, Bob, we've got this game, you've got that game, and then there's three others. And then he'd phone what's his name, Dave Woods and just check with him. Um, what, what were we supposed to be doing? And then he'd say, oh, we've got this and this. And then I'd end up with a list of five or six. And then I'd, with no apparent deadlines or no deadlines ready, and then I'd just kind of start them all, really. Um, and then see which one I got pressured to finish first, you know. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I did work hard, but I did spend an awful lot of time looking at a blank piece of paper, not knowing what the hell to do. You know, a golf game, Jesus Christ. What, is there anything going on in it? No, it's just golf. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, is there any aliens or a dragon? Please, give me something. That's no, golf. And then games like that. Oh, we've got a flying game. <laughs> Great. So what happens? Oh, you just fly. Stick a plane on. <laughs> yeah, you just fly in a plane. Oh, jeez, please. <laughs> so they were difficult. Well, did you ever find it, obviously, you know, when you're coming up with stuff from scratch, I imagine that was very different to when you did things like the Batman cover, because they were already established kind of styles and characters. I mean, how did your approach to them differ? Um, to those, um, they were approved by DC. Hmm. Um, so, essentially, I did, well, to be honest, both times, but for both of the ones I illustrated, I did a complete piece of artwork, and they sent it over to DC for approval, and I think I got changes on both of them, but only tiny ones, um, and I think it was all to do with the length of Batman's ears. Because I, I saw the original artwork again recently, which I sold a long time ago. And there was an overlay with a fresh set of Batman ears on it. It was like with everything else, else with Ocean. The vast majority of the time, I went straight to full artwork, not even a sketch. And they trusted me to do something. So the kind of final thing that you'd do would be go in and chuck the artwork on the desk and be yeah. like, finished. Yeah, yeah. Just go to see Steve Blower, give him the artwork, and see would say, "Yeah, do you fancy a drink? That's great." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that'll do, Bob. Let's Are get you hungry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do you fancy a tie? Yeah, <laughs> good approach. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then we come back and look at the artwork again. But I never, 
there were one or two where I had to make very slight changes. One was on the Renegade artwork. I had a knife in the girl's hand, and I had to change it to something else. I think I know one had a mace in it, and the other one had a knife. And for the German market, they 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 thought that was too violent. Is kind of hilarious, really. But um, and there were a couple of other things like you know just really silly things like take the cleft out of someone's chin. I remember as a kid, one cover that stuck in my mind as a, as a young lad was um, where time stood still. The the lady on the front with a rather see through t shirt. <laughs> yeah, that that was um, an illo. Uh, sorry, a photo of, of uh, penthouse. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, and that, you know what? I used to have a file. <laughs> it wasn't all penthouse. But <laughs> I used to have a file of like great photographs that I really liked that, that had a bit of dynamism in them. And I thought could, or, you know, could be like sort of whether it was a woman looking quite sexy, but not in a sort of sort of trashy way, but looking, you know, sort of erotic. It all sounds like crap now because you were talking about the 1980s, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked for it me, Bob. It worked for me. It's making me laugh. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so it was like muscle men and uh, Lisa Lyon, the bodybuilder. I mean, I used a few pics of her um, when I wanted a woman to, to have more muscle. And I used her as a model even, you know, that it, say it was a woman a photo at a penthouse like it was in that one, I would use pictures of Lisa Lyon to add the musculature to a body because I didn't want to look in like pipe cleaners, you know. I'd forgotten about that one. Out of all the pieces you've done, what's your favourite? To be honest, it does. I, I do like quite a few of them, but I think in every piece I've done, there's something I really hate. You know, there's something I absolutely can't stand about them I think one of one of my favourite pieces is Operation Wolf because I love I just love the way I managed to get that character coming straight out of the page um, and also the guy was one of my mates who posed for it which is which kind of adds something to it you know so, yeah, I'd, I'd say Operation Wolf. The, the other one I really like, actually, is Highlander, but the game was crap. Mm. You know, that that I think Highlander was probably technically one of the best illustrations that I did. I always remember Epic as well. I like that one. Epic. Yeah. Do you know what? I really enjoyed that. I've forgotten, I've forgotten who wrote the game, the, the guys that, that wrote the game. And I don't think... They liked it when they saw it. Because oh, wow. I went round to see them and they showed me a lot of stills and stuff, you know, of characters in it. And then I came up with, with my idea. And I don't think that was the idea that they really wanted. But unfortunately, like David Ward and Steve Blower and other people thought it was great. So they didn't really get much of a say in it. I mean, sorry, was... sorry, whoever those fellows were, <laughs> I apologise, <laughs> honestly. Well, I think, you know, you look at some of your other covers as well, like I remember, you know, Mikey, that game, that was uh, 
quite original. I mean, that must have been quite a change in style from the other stuff you've yeah. done. Yeah, see, I used to like doing stuff like that. Mm. Uh, yeah, Do, doing those like madcap cartoon style uh, ones, which I I did a handful. Um, I really enjoyed doing that kind of stuff. The background actually was drawn by somebody else, not me. I, I designed the main character, but then the actual drawing of the characters in the background was done by a friend who's now lived in New York for 25 years or something like that. Uh, and then I, I painted them. Um, I, I don't even know if I gave him any credit. Probably not, because he might have left the country by then. I wouldn't bother. Would I? Let's face it. <laughs> well, obviously, you know, as we kind of got into like the mid '90s and stuff, when 3D started coming around, I mean, kind of game covers moved away from like painted pictures, yeah. didn't they? Quite a lot. I mean, yeah. did, did that affect you a lot? Yeah, a lot. I mean, one I had <clears throat> um, more pressure on me to get more detailed. I think, you know. So the last the last couple of things I did. One, they didn't particularly sell that well because the games world was changing so much. But I was asked to really pull out the stops. And the games kind of pretty much disappeared down the plug hole anyway. Um, Central intelligence, you know, the, the amount of time I put into that was was crazy. And then I had a, an argument with Ocean about the bill. But I said, you can't ask me to do four times the amount of work and then expect me to change, sorry, to charge the same amount of money. That's crazy, you know. It kind of, it just went away, basically. That was it. It was all rendered stuff. And for a while, everything looked absolutely the same, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was so sad going into somewhere like HMV and just looking at it and thinking, God, is this it now? It's this kind of greyness right across the shelves. It's horrible. But um, I just moved into other stuff. Sort of took a few months to think about what I wanted to do. I went back to Marvel for a bit, and that was too much like hard work, really. It was a young man's game, you know, and I just thought, right, kids' books for me. Well, uh, we kind of go around retro shows and always bump into you, Bob, especially at Play Expo. You're always there. Um, yeah. W- what are you kind of up to nowadays? I'm pretty much retired, to be honest. I'm still doing things that, you know, requests, pieces of artwork, songs people are paying me, obviously, but as far as commercial work goes, because of ill health, I've I've had no choice but to stop taking on commercial work with deadlines because it's impossible for me to guarantee I can meet a deadline because I spend half well I spend a big proportion of my week in hospital Mm -hmm. and when I'm not in hospital then you know maybe a quarter of the rest of the time just really tired Um, so really I just carried on for as long as I could and then just like got in touch with a few people and said sorry you know that's it, I can't do it anymore. Well, Bob, I mean, it is always wonderful when we see you at shows, and uh, it, it must be great bumping into the fans and these, these, you know, guys who bought these games when they were kids and still have fond memories, like, you know, 20, 30 years down the line. Oh, yeah, it's... it's I mean, it is strange that, you know, initially I was a bit worried about it, you know, because I didn't have that much interest in games, and I was expecting it just to be a bunch of intolerable geeks. <laughs> <laughs> 
and and it turned out to be well, there are a lot of intolerable geeks, but you got two here. Yeah, <laughs> but but a lot of them are very tolerable <laughs> and very nice people, you know. So that's cool, and um, I, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed getting back into it and meeting people, people who essentially tell me the same story. But what am I supposed to say, you know? Bob, I loved your stuff when I was a kid. Good. That was my plan. Well, it proves you did it well, though. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bob, hopefully we'll bump into you at another show soon. It's, uh, it's always, always lovely to see you. And thank you for uh, reminiscing with us. It's been fascinating getting all these stories. You're welcome. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Yeah, take care of yourself. <laughs> Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.